Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to the book of Acts and locate chapter 14 in that great book. Uh, just to let you know that next week we are returning to our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Some of you may have joined us after the fact. We haven't been in 1 Corinthians for about a year and a half now. When we left off, we left off at the end of chapter 11. So throughout the summer months, throughout July and August, we're going to be looking at chapters 12 to 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians, focusing on spiritual gifts. Looking forward to a great series of doing that together. But for the past few weeks... Uh, we've been taking a look at why it is that we do what we do when we gather as a church in a series we call The Primer on Worship. This message today doesn't quite fit into that category. It's a little bit more about what we do when we scatter as a church, not so much about what we do when we gather as a church. But this really is connected to the DNA of our church, to the DNA of Crossridge, the mission of Crossridge Church is to know Jesus and to make him known. And we're going to, as we look at Acts chapter 14, we're going to focus on the second part of that. What does it look like to make Jesus known? And really what I want to focus on is a particular aspect of that mission of making Jesus known. And that question is, what does it look like to be committed to the mission that God has given to us. And I want to set this up for you by telling you a story that Tim Bowden tells in a book called One Crowded Hour. The book is about cameraman Neil Davis and his experiences on the front lines of battlefields all over the world. And Bowden tells about one incident that happened in Borneo during the conflict between Malaysia and Indonesia back in 1964. There was a group of Gurkhas, that's trained soldiers from Nepal, who were asked if they would be willing to jump from combat planes into combat against the Indonesians if the need arose for them. Now, the Gurkhas had the right to turn down any request, uh, because they, and, and this one especially, because they had not been trained as paratroopers. But Bowden quotes Neil Davis's account of the story, and he said this, Now, the Gurkhas usually agreed to anything. But on this occasion, they provisionally rejected the plan. But the next day, one of their commanders sought out the British officer who had made the request and said, you know what, we've discussed this matter further. We would be prepared to jump under certain conditions. What are they? Asked the British officer. Gurkhas told him they would jump if the land was marshy or reasonably soft with no rocky outcrops because they were inexperienced in falling. British officer considered this. He said, look, the dropping area would almost certainly be over jungle. There'd be no rocky outcrops. So that seemed right and it was agreeable. Was there anything else? Yes, the Gurkha leader said. They wanted the plane to fly as slowly as possible and no more than 100 feet high. British officer pointed out that planes always did fly as slowly as possible when they were dropping troops, but to jump from 100 feet was impossible because the parachutes would not open from that height. Oh, parachutes, said the Gurkhas. Well, in that case, we will take the assignment. You didn't mention the parachutes before. See, that's commitment, right? I mean, they were prepared for this mission, prepared even to jump from a, a height of 100 feet, 
with or without parachutes. And I tell you that story because the passage we're looking at in Acts chapter 14 shows us what kind of commitment the early church had to the mission that God had given them. So we're in Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 to 21, and I do invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And it says this. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You can be seated. Well, it's really a fascinating passage, what happens here in Acts chapter 14. There's a lot that we can glean from it. I want to focus our attention on the ways it demonstrates for us what commitment to mission looks like. And I want to highlight four things It means to be committed to the mission. The first one is simply a commitment to preach the gospel. Now, I know that sounds like the captain obvious thing to say, but it needs to be said. 
Verse 1 talks about the fact that as they go into Iconium, they enter into the Jewish synagogue, and there's many Jews and many Gentiles who believe, but there's others who are trying to persuade the crowds against them. Verse 4 then talks about the division that arose in the city of Iconium, and it says, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Verse 6 then tells us that there was a, a, a plot that was hatched to try to kill Paul and Barnabas. They move on to the cities of Lyconia. And then verse 7 says this. And there they continued to preach the gospel. See, the preaching of the gospel is like the big E on the I chart. If we miss this, there is no way we can fulfill the mission that God has given to us. And part of the reason I even need to stop here and say that we need a commitment to preach the gospel is because the preaching of the gospel has fallen out of favor in recent times. I don't just mean what happens on Sunday mornings from pulpits, though I think that's true as well. What I mean is that we are less likely to share the message of the gospel with those we come in contact with than earlier generations were. I was interested to read the studies or the findings of a study that was recently published by the Barna Group. They did a massive survey on behalf of Alpha about the attitudes of Christians towards evangelism. They interviewed those who identify themselves as practicing Christians, those who were active in their faith, those who attended church regularly. Here were some of the study's findings. Now, this survey was conducted across all generational groups, and it found that 94 to 97% of Christians across the board said that the best thing that could ever happen to someone would be for them to come to know Jesus. Almost all practicing Christians, ranging from 86 to 92%, said they also know how to respond when someone raises questions about their faith. They can answer those questions. A majority of each generational group, ranging from 56% to 73%, believed that they were gifted in sharing their faith with other people. So those are somewhat encouraging stats. That's the good news. Yet despite recognizing the importance of telling people about Jesus, claiming to know how to share their faith, a significant portion of practicing Christians say it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And here's where it gets interesting. Almost half of millennials, so those aged roughly 20 to 34, say it's wrong to share one's beliefs. As do one in four or 20% of, 27% of Gen Xers. Ages 35 to 53, and one in five baby boomers, age about 54 to 72, and elders, age 73 and older, say it's wrong to share your faith with someone in the hopes that they will come to faith. So what are we supposed to make of that? Why has this fallen on such hard times? At some point, maybe you've seen the magician duo of Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette is one half of that act. He's also a very outspoken atheist. And he said this. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. 
He went on to say, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because this would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? See, he seems to understand that far better than many Christians do. This is the task we've been given to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to all nations. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. And I think until we come to terms with the fact that no person, whether a first century pagan like we meet in Acts chapter 14, or a 21st century materialist like we might meet around us, until we come to to terms with the truth that none of them can be saved by any means other than by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, we will never come to grips with the importance of the gospel or be motivated to proclaim it as we should. People are desperately lost without the gospel. And we need to be committed to sharing the good news that we've been entrusted with. Like Paul and Barnabas, we need to continue to preach the gospel. Second characteristic of what it looks like to be committed to the mission is a commitment to preach the gospel to all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. So the first thing that happens in the city of Lystra is a miraculous healing. There's a man who has been crippled from birth who gets healed. Now, we know the Gospels don't record all the miracles that Jesus did. In the same way, the book of Acts does not record all the miracles that the apostles did. But have you ever just stopped to wonder, why is it that certain miracles get recorded for us? Why are these the ones that are highlighted? I mean, apart from the fact that this healing was a sight to behold... Why is this miracle recorded and highlighted for us? And I wonder if at least part of the reason is because of the parallels with a similar miracle that's recorded earlier in the book of Acts. So I want you to listen again to what happens here in verses 8 to 10. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now listen to the opening verses of Acts chapter three and just note the similarities. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. So both of those accounts demonstrate the healing of a man who was lame or crippled from birth. 
Both accounts record the apostle or the apostles fixing their gaze or looking intently at the individual. And both accounts record the reaction of the crowd. But there's a key difference between those two accounts. And the difference is in where those miracles took place. The first event took place in Jerusalem at the temple, in fact. And the second one took place in Gentile territory. And if you read through the book of Acts, you will find that this is the movement of the book of Acts. The outline of the book of Acts is given to us in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts tells us how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and, in fact, to the very ends of the earth. And this miracle is part of that taking place. And this story then is a reminder of the universal nature of the gospel. It is good news for all people. And it's good for us to be reminded of this. In the first century, the church needed to know that the gospel wasn't just good news for the Jews, but for all people. They needed to know that the gospel wasn't just for the religious types, but it was for sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And in our context, we need to be reminded that the gospel is not just for middle-class suburban dwellers. The gospel is good news for all people. It's good news for all kinds of people. Do we believe that? So I've had a, a vehicle sitting on my driveway for the past three years or so. I, I wanted to get the, it back on the road, so I had to get it towed to a neighborhood mechanic And I had an interesting uh, interaction with the tow truck driver when he came to our place. Uh, We chatted for a bit, and at one point he asked me what I did for a living, and I said, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. Now, at that point, it's either a conversation killer or it leads to an interesting conversation. That's just what I've found over the years. In this case, he said, wow, I'm not expletive religious, but I've got a question for you. And in fact, he had several questions. He had a question about Israel, what was happening in Israel and about religious wars. He had a question about, you know, how is it, how do pastors get paid? Maybe it was the 2001 Acura he was towing. I I don't know. Something prompted that. And then he had another question. And he said, you probably don't have people like me in your church, do you? And he kind of pointed to his tattoos. He was a rougher guy, tatted up. I said, well, I mean, we actually have one on staff. (laughs) You're welcome to come. We had a good chat. He used to attend movies here at the Clova back in the day. Now, I haven't seen him in person yet, but the gospel is good news for all kinds of people. And we need to remember that. So I said we need a commitment to preach the gospel to all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. So let me just touch on that second part for a minute. Now, we're going to come back and take a look at the healing itself and the response to it in a few minutes. But first, I want you to notice something about Paul's missional methodology in this chapter. He heals the man, the crowd see it, and immediately they start trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. This is what they know of religion. If someone has the ability to heal, he must be a god. 
That's what they know. And listen again to Paul's mini-sermon in response to that. You see it in verses 15 to 18. Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Notice where Paul begins. Now, I'm not meaning to sound harsh in my assessment of the Lyconians, but these were illiterate pagans. And so Paul begins with the idea of God as creator. He's the one who made all things. He's the one who provides all things, the rains in their season, the fruit that you enjoy. This is the world the people knew. And so Paul begins on a place of common ground. That's how he engages them in a gospel conversation. And you can note the contrast with the way the chapter began. Back in verse 1, it said, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. See, Note the difference in strategy, right? When he goes to the synagogue, he reasons with them from the scriptures. When he's dealing with those with a pagan background, he engages with them where they're at. And you actually see this thing all through the book of Acts. When Paul wanted to reach the Jews of his day, he would go into the synagogue, he would open the scriptures, and he would debate them or reason with them. That was their place of commonality. But when Paul wanted to reach those who weren't Jews or or those who weren't familiar with the Old Testament, he took a different tack entirely. And we need to learn to do the same thing. We need to learn to engage our world with the gospel in a way that begins from a place of common ground. So we need to be students of our culture. We need to know what people's longings are, what their frustrations are, what questions they have. And then we bring the gospel to bear on those things. We need to learn to contextualize our presentation of the gospel. And why is it so important that we understand that? Why is it so important that we understand that a cookie-cutter approach to evangelism won't work? In his book, Everyday Church, Steve Timmis cites a recent study from Great Britain in which 70% of Brits declare they have no no intention of ever attending a church service for any reason. Not Easter, not for marriages, not for funerals or Christmas Eve services. Far more than two-thirds of the people in Great Britain, for them, nothing will carry them naturally into a church. And so in light of that, he comments, this means new styles of worship will not reach them. Fresh expressions of church will not reach them. Alpha and Christianity Explored will not reach them. Great first impressions will not reach them. Churches meeting in pubs will not reach them. The vast majority of unchurched and de-churched people would not turn to church even if faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedies. It's not a question of improving the product of church meetings and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. See, this is Paul's strategy. Go where the people are. 
That's where you begin. Commenting on the way Paul engaged the Lyconians here in Acts 14, John Stott said this. He said, but we have to begin where people are, to find a point of contact with them. With secularized people today, this might be what constitutes authentic humanness, the universal quest for transcendence, the hunger for love and community, the search for freedom, or the longing for personal significance. Wherever we begin, however, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. This is what we do. We go where people are. We engage them with the questions they're asking and we bring the gospel to bear on those things. Now, I think it's important that we don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean the church is not part of what it means to reach people with the gospel. All of those statistics about people not coming into church are true. For those who have not been invited or those who have no relationship with anyone who is a Christian. So we have our kids camp coming up in just a couple of weeks. And this year we have more kids who are coming to kids camp from outside the church than we've ever had in the years we've been doing this. And the reason for that is because two years ago we started building a relationship with one of the local housing co-ops. Some of you have been part of those efforts. Now, we could have just, you know, done mail outs, right? Just send a bunch of flyers out. We could have went and hung door hangers. We started building a relationship. It's far more effective to meet people where they are and then start to build bridges. And it might take time. But this is what we do. This is what I mean by saying that we need to be committed to preaching the gospel to all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. We need to find the the ways that are effective for us to do it. The gospel does not change, but the way we go about sharing it does. Third thing we need to be committed to the mission is a commitment to make much of Jesus and make little of ourselves. And this is what we learn from how Paul and Barnabas handled the response to the miracle. Listen again to verses 11 to 14. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, told them to stop. Now, look, I've had the opportunity to speak in lots of different places. I've never had anything like that happen. I mean, no no one's ever sort of rushed me after and said, you must be a god. Paul and Barnabas didn't really understand what was happening at first. Because as the text says, the people were lifting up their voices in the Lyconian language. But as soon as they understood what was happening, they tore their clothes. They rushed out and stopped the crowd. Now, that's a pretty extreme example, I know. We might be tempted just to dismiss it. It's not going to happen to us. This isn't the kind of thing that happens usually when we share the gospel with someone. But I think there's a more subtle form of this that happens all the time in ministry. Now, next week, we're returning to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've forgotten, it was a pretty messed up church. In chapter 1 of that book, Paul describes the problem like this, or at least part of the problem like this. 
He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What Paul is saying is, the gospel is not about us. Paul says, I wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized into my name. And I think this is important to remember in the day of celebrity pastors. The moment the gospel becomes about us is the moment the cross is emptied of its power. The gospel is not about us and what we have done. The gospel is about Jesus and what he has done. I think there's a great picture of what it looks like to make little of ourselves and make much of Jesus in the ministry of John the Baptist. In John chapter 3, it says what was happening to John. It says, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, that's Jesus, across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's an amazing statement from John. His own disciples come to him and they say, hey, John, your popularity is slipping. The crowds that used to flock to you are now flocking to Jesus. What should we do? PR campaign? John says he couldn't be happier. He's like, it's not about me. John identifies himself as the friend of the bridegroom. It's actually a great analogy. I mean, picture a wedding. What would you think if you went to a wedding and one of the groomsmen or one of the bridesmen is doing everything they can to draw attention to themselves and divert that attention from the bride or the groom? See, that's what it looks like when we make much of ourselves and little of Jesus. It's ridiculous. All of the focus, all that we can, we deflect towards Jesus. I mean, your job as a brides, as a groomsman or as a bridesmaid is just to stand there and smile, isn't it? If only more of us understood and lived like this was true, if we didn't need to be the hero of our own stories, if more of us, even in our difficulties, simply said, he must increase and I must decrease. It's a powerful testimony. What's better for the kingdom? That people would look at us and say, wow, that guy or that girl has everything together. Or wow, I can't actually explain that person's life apart from the work of God. In this passage, the people marvel at the miracle Paul and Barnabas perform. Their first instinct is to focus their attention on Paul and Barnabas. And Paul's response is not, look, I've got a bunch more tricks I can do. 
What he says is we're just ordinary people like you. But our God is amazing. And that ought to be the story that we tell as well. Let's make much of Jesus. Let's make little of ourselves. Final thing I want to highlight for you in terms of what commitment to the mission looks like is that it means a commitment to keep preaching the gospel regardless of the response. You know, the difference between what happens in verse 18 and what happens in verse 19 is staggering. Just listen to those verses again. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And then verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So one group wanted to worship Paul. The other one wanted to kill him and thought they did. And I would just say we can expect a varied response to our sharing of the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that very thing. He says that to one, we are the aroma of Christ. And to the other, we're basically the stench of death. The way Luke actually tells this to us is almost comical in light of what happened to Paul and Barnabas or in light of what happened to Paul. Listen now to verses 20 and 21. After Paul has been stoned and dragged out of the city, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They continued to preach the gospel regardless of the response. Just another average day in ministry for Paul, right? Lauded in one city, hated in another. And Paul just kind of dusts himself off, goes on to the next city and does exactly the same thing. That's actually the nature of mission. Paul's protege in ministry was Timothy. Timothy ended up pastoring the church in the city of Ephesus. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What Paul says to Timothy is, look, be prepared to preach the word in season And out of season. When it's popular for you to do so. And when it's unpopular for you to do so. And that same thing is true for us. When it comes to sharing the gospel. We need to do it in season. And out of season. We need to do it regardless of. If the response is favorable. Or someone says look I reject that altogether. I think sometimes we have this mistaken notion that we just need to get the formula right. Right? If we use this track. Use this program. Ask these questions. Then it will work out. And then we get discouraged. 
or we give up when we don't get the response we were hoping for. And we're told that one of the definitions of crazy is just to continue to do the same thing, expecting different results. But I would say there are times where doing the same thing will produce different results. You know, the most famous sermon that was ever preached in North America is the one preached by Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut on July 9th, 1741. His sermon title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was a message on the horrors of hell. Now, part of the reason that sermon became famous is because of what happened as a result of it. As the people sitting in the pews listened to Edward's sermon, many of them began weeping, crying out, how can I be saved? And what happened afterwards can only be described as the outpouring of God's spirit. A revival started in that little town that eventually spread all over New England. It became one of the greatest revivals in the United States. It came to be known as the Great Awakening. It began with Jonathan Edwards preaching that sermon in Enfield, Connecticut on July 9th, 1741. So many people have at least heard of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon. What most people don't know is that July 9th, 1941 was not the first time he had preached that sermon. He preached that exact same sermon a month earlier in his home church in Northampton, Connecticut. And do you know what the response was? Nothing. There was no weeping. There was no crying out. No one said, how can I be saved? There was no repentance, no revival. And I share that with you because we do not know what will happen when we share the good news of the gospel with someone. The response might be favorable. It might be that someone says, it's the best news I've ever heard. The response might be unfavorable. Someone might say, look, I want nothing to do with you. Our task is just to be faithful in sharing the good news that Christ has given to us. So our desire as a church is to be on mission. Can I just encourage you that you're experience, you will experience different seasons of fruitfulness as you engage in that mission? Your task is just to be faithful. Our task is just to be faithful to the mission. And whether the seed you sow lands on the path, on rocky soil, on shallow soil, or in good soil that produces an abundant harvest, the task before us, the commitment we make is just to be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the good news of the gospel. The only thing that can solve the issues we experience in our world, the only thing that can satisfy the longings of the human heart. Lord, sometimes we are reticent to share it. Sometimes we think it's awkward. So God, would you give us the boldness that we need? Would you give us the love that we need for the people around us? Help open our eyes to see those needs. And God, we pray as a church that we would be faithful to the task that you have given us, that we would look back years from now and say we were faithful in knowing Jesus and making him known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.